I want to start this morning by asking you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, that's not the text that Kevin read for us this morning, so don't let that throw you off too much. We will get back to Mark 3, but I want to start in Revelation chapter 21. If you have your Bibles this morning, whether in text or whether in, uh, in published form or on your phone or wherever you have it, I invite you to have it out. We're going to be looking at a number of different passages potentially this morning. Revelation chapter 21. Now, in this chapter, we are being introduced to the heavenly city of New Jerusalem. And you'll remember we actually preached through these two chapters not too long ago, last year, and we talked about what the, this new city that we are going to inhabit for eternity is going to be. Remember, it's a, a city that comes down out of heaven. Our heavenly inheritance is not up there. It's not going to be up there. It's going to be down here. There's going to be a new heaven, yes, but a new earth. We are going to live eternally in a new earth. And so this city comes down. John sees it coming down out of heaven, and he's describing it for us in all this blinding glory. The jewels bedecking the walls, the golden streets, the massive size. I mean, we're talking continental size. We're not talking like a city that we're familiar with. And I want us to notice here something that is striking. In verse number 12 of Revelation 21, we see that there is a wall great and high at this city. And there are 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So imagine these gates, these massive walls, these gates, and written on them, inscribed on them for eternity, are the names of 12 tribes. Now you could go back to your Old Testament, and you could read exactly what that is. But now keep on going. I want us to see in verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Just imagine this massive wall, and there are built up foundations underlying the wall, undergirding the wall. Got that picture in your mind, like a house with an exposed foundation? And in them, or you could translate also on them, that's the idea the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 names are on those foundations that will be in this glorious, eternal city of New Jerusalem that all of us will have our reality in if we are in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 12 names inscribed eternally. Who? The 12 apostles. Who are they? The 12 people we're going to talk about today. Well, not actually all 12 of them. There's one name that's going to be missing. Judas isn't going to be inscribed eternally. Now you say, who's going to be there? Well, it might be Matthias, who was selected to replace him after Jesus rose again. Some have suggested it will be Paul as the one born out of due time, yet an apostle. We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that on, on, that, on that city will be inscribed eternally. Now, I want you just to imagine that eternal significance of those names. The eternal significance of the choice of Jesus Christ, as we looked at last week from Mark chapter 3, when he called together whoever he wanted, who he chose, and he picked out twelve. He was not just making a temporary choice for three years for these people to follow him. He was making an eternal choice for those whose names would be forever inscribed in the walls, the very walls of God's heavenly city. I, I don't even know how to communicate it to you any more deeply than that. Maybe in your house growing up, you put concrete, uh, concrete in your driveway, and maybe you went out there and you had your kids put their hands in the concrete as an lasting reminder we were here. You can go out in this narthex right back here by the wall, and you know those stained glass windows? Have you ever stopped and noticed the names that are written on them? 
One always sticks with me, Robert Weatherston Cranston. Do you know I looked up Robert, Robert Weatherston Cranston? There's a man buried in Lakewood Cemetery just south of here named Robert Weatherston Cranston. He was born in 1903. He died in 1991. I suspect it's the same. I don't know anything about him. But now, how many hundreds or even thousands of people across the history of the church have walked past the window inscribed with Robert Weatherston Cranston? I said, I wonder who he was. It means something. So who were these men? These men that Jesus himself chose to have eternal significance and greatness. And I want to start there because oftentimes when we think about the 12 apostles, at least if I do, I kind of think of something like the Keystone Cops. The bumbling guys who never could quite get it right. The guys who were always saying dumb things. Peter who had habitual foot and mouth disease. James and John who were always popping off as the sons of thunder. And we sometimes don't get the exact right perspective. These guys were no keystone cops, at least in an eternal sense. Their names are going to be there for us to see and be grateful for for eternity. Now on that basis, I want us to go back to Mark chapter 3 with the appropriate eternal perspective and eternal sobriety to think, who were these men? And what exactly is God trying to tell us about our life and his calling for us in light of who these men were? I put together a quick chart that you may have grabbed on the way in. If not, it's right back there near the back. Um, you can run it. We'll, we'll use this to kind of help us visualize who these people are, and I think ultimately, hopefully, it will be a help. The title of the message this morning is simply The King's Chosen Ones. The King's Chosen Ones, and we're going to try to understand who he chose and exactly why they might be relevant to us. Let's start, first of all, with what I'm just going to call some general observations about these 12 names. Just some general observations. And for this, let's take our sheet here. And what I've done here is there are really three, but four, but I just included the three in the Gospels here, listings of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. Three of them are in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not contain a listing of the 12 apostles. And the other listing of the apostles is in Acts. Acts chapter 1, when it says they gathered again together after Christ's resurrection. But Judas isn't there on Acts 1. Why? Because he had already committed suicide. He had already died, and they were selecting someone to replace him. So let's just start with these gospel accounts, and let's just scan your name across the page. And notice I've, I've titled it the 12 apostles. Now, the first general observation that we would make is simply the number of them. Why do you think Jesus chose 12 apostles? 12. What is, the, what is the significance of that number biblically? Tribes. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. This was not an accident. So remember, the Old Testament covenant of God was with 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes corresponded to 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob, Israel, right? The founder of the Israelite nation, the, the ultimate patriarch. From him came 12 sons. From these came 12 tribes. And so this was a picture. If you, if you see in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, what was that referring to? All of them. All of them. All of God's covenant people. So now Jesus comes, the king comes to inaugurate a new kingdom, a new covenant between God and man. And who does he pick? He picks 12. Now the connection, Jesus makes this connection to the Old Testament 12 tribes clear. Listen to what he says in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, you can look at this if you want to turn over there. It's in verse 27 and verse 28. This is the story of the rich young ruler where that rich young man came to Jesus and said, hey, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, have you kept the commandments? He said, I kept all the commandments. And Jesus said, okay, go give away everything that you have and come follow me. And he says, sorry, I can't do that. That's too much. And he walks away. And the disciples are just flabbergasted, right? 
Because Jesus tells them it's harder for a camel to go through a needle's eye, a, the, a, the small eye of a pin, than it is for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. And they say, well, who can be saved then? Why? Because what, was, what were riches to the fastidious Jew? They were signs of God's blessing. If the most blessed among us can't find salvation, what good do us commoners have who haven't been blessed like that? No way. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, no, with God, all things are possible. And then Peter pipes up. This is just Peter, right? This is so much Peter. He pipes up and says, well, what do we get? We left everything and followed you. How about us? And listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't rebuke him. He says in verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration or in the resurrection, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now what's he referring to here? He's referring to the, the millennial kingdom. Revelation speaks of this. When Jesus, after his second coming, he will reign on the earth for 1,000 years. And Jesus promises them, you will be sitting on 12 thrones and you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is not just selecting friends. He's not just selecting people to be with him. He's selecting the new leadership of his spiritual economy. That's what he's doing. Now, let that sink in. He was selecting his leadership. What, is, what did that say to the Pharisees? You're not it. You're not it. How humbling would that have been if they had really grappled with that? Jesus came and selected 12 commoners to replace the spiritual and religious elite of that day. Very sobering. Notice not only the number, but notice who's first in all three lists. Who's first? Simon, who Jesus called Peter. Now, why is Simon first in every one of the lists? Because remember what this list was for. It was selecting his leadership. And who was the fundamental, the primary leader in the disciple band? And then after, in the book of Acts, Peter. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter after he confidently proclaims, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It wasn't a human being who did, it was, it was God. It was my father. He revealed it to you. And then he says, and I also say this to you, Peter. He says, you are Peter. And on this Peter, you've got to understand how Jesus was speaking there and what language he was speaking in. And on this stone, this rock, I will build my church. Actually, it said that in the French, if you were to translate it in the French, it would be the same thing. You are Pierre, and on this Pierre, I will build my church. Now, does that mean he was the first pope? Like the Roman Catholics say, no. It does mean this. There is something Jesus is clearly alluding to the meaning of his name and his confident declaration in who Jesus was. And he was signaling something important about Peter. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, who was the first person to proclaim the risen Savior to the entire Jewish people, who opened the door of the gospel, it was Peter. Who was the one else in Acts who opened the door, who was gifted with opening the door to the Gentiles? Peter. Peter had a special calling in God's plan, and he's first, he's listed first, always in this list of apostles. Who's last? All three lists. You don't even need to look at the list, do you? Judas Iscariot. Of course, Judas Iscariot is going to be last, the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. So just notice that, again, just general. Here's a third general ob ob uh, observation. Look, notice the groups. What I want you to see here is, there is, the first name is always the same, even though two through four are different. What's the next number that's always the same in the listing of the apostles? Which, which, the, which is the next one that's always the same? Five. Philip is always listed as apostle number five. Which is the next one that's always listed the same order? Nine. James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, one, five, and nine are always listed together. They're always in the same order, which has led some to believe, again, we're not being dogmatic about this, it's suggested to some that Jesus' disciples were really broken up into kind of three groups. You had your first four, led, if you will, kind of by Peter. 
you kind of had your next four led kind of by Philip, and then you kind of had your last four led by James, the son of Alphaeus. Again, this just may have been the case, something we see when we compare all the lists to one another. So general observations, they were 12, Peter's always first, Judas is always last, and there may be something to the grouping or categories of them. But now let's get into, secondly, what I'll call the specific characteristics of these names. And what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to pair them together just to make it a little bit easier for us to talk about them, in part because several of them were brothers. And that's true of the first name on our list, and then at least in the Matthew account, the second name, Peter and Andrew. Now, who was Simon Peter? Simon Peter, his name that Jesus gave him was Rock, having the idea of stability. The remarkable thing is Peter was anything but very stable. Peter was a bit of a hothead. How do we know? Well, do you remember what happened when Jesus came to be betrayed and arrested by Judas? Who was the one who took a sword like this and tried to chop off the guy who was arresting him? It was Peter. He only, thankfully, he wasn't a very good swordsman. He was a fisherman. And so he only lopped off his ear. He didn't split him down the middle. But that was what he was trying to do. And it wasn't just in kind of his, his physical ways. As I said, Peter was, was, was absolutely foot-and-mouth disease. I mean, he was always the guy who was jumping in with a question that we look back now and we just shake our head. Peter, what, what were you thinking about that? Do you remember right after Jesus um, it, it praises Peter and says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you that I'm the Messiah. God did. Immediately, only a couple verses after that, Jesus then says, begins telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And what does Peter do? No, Lord, don't let that be your path. And Jesus looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. One who had something revealed to him by God himself about who Jesus was, now is being referred to as his enemy, as his adversary, Satan. He was a guy who sometimes had a hard time prioritizing Christ's expectations that included suffering over his own personal selfish expectations. A guy who just was kind of brash, impetuous, a guy who, frankly, some of us can identify with. Who was Andrew? Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Actually, Andrew was the guy who I introduced Peter to Jesus. What an interesting thing. If you were to look at John 1, 40 through 42, again, you can either look there or you can just make a note of it to look at on your own time. Andrew, we learn, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he heard John the Baptist look at Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And Andrew says, Well, I better follow that guy. And so then Andrew goes off to follow Jesus. And here's what he does. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation, a stone. And if you look, we won't look at all the examples, but if you look at the pictures that are provided of Andrew in our New Testament, he's bringing people to Jesus. He, he brought the boy with the five loaves and the two small fishes to Jesus when they couldn't figure out what to do with fish. Now, it wasn't a very faith-fueled response. He said, well, we got five loaves and two fishes, but what are those among so many? But nonetheless, he brought it to Jesus. There, were, there was a situation, I think, in John 12 when Philip brings men, who, some Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. And what does Andrew do? He hears about it, and he goes and tells Jesus about it. A wonderful character that Andrew seemed to have. Two brothers, Peter and Andrew. By the way, one point. Isn't it interesting that Jesus looked at Peter and, and at Simon, who his name was, and called him something he wasn't, but that he would be? He wasn't a stone, but Jesus knew that he would be, so he called him a stone. Now, I take that. Do you know I take that as a father? Sometimes we can get so negative and so critical with our children to tell them everything they aren't everything they're failing at, every way they're disappointing us. And what does Jesus do? He gives someone a name for someone he will become. Tell your children what they should aspire to be, not just what they fail at being. Put a vision in front of them. Put a vision in front of those who you're discipling. Tell them what they can be in Christ's power, not who they never will be. 
So interesting, Peter and Andrew, two brothers. Now let's go next, and we're going to talk about James, son of Zebedee, and John, son of Zebedee. Two brothers, two more brothers in this first group. Again, if you're thinking about this first four. Who were these men? Well, they also were fishermen. And it seems that they had a place of some importance societally. You say, why do you say that? Well, because if you were to look at John chapter 18, you would see that John knew the high priest. How would John know the high priest in Jerusalem? He was from in Galilee, north. Well, Zebedee, it's probably worth speculating. Zebedee may have been a person of some prestige. He may have been a person of some wealth. He may have been a person of some importance. In fact, John was the one who let Peter in to be where Jesus was being tried and where Peter ultimately denied Jesus. So John and James must have been people of some, at least, societal significance. But notice what Jesus says about them here in Mark chapter 13. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. You see, the sons of thunder. One pastor has said, and I think it's rightly, Jesus was calling them hotheads. Do you know John and James were hotheads? How do we know this? Luke chapter 9, you can write, make this note, verse 53 through 56. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. He's going through a particular neighborhood of villages, and they're not giving Jesus credence. They see that he seems to be going elsewhere, and so they're not really respecting him like these disciples think. And so do you know what James and John the hotheads say? Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven and incinerate him? I just think about how ridiculous this sounds in the light of all scripture that we have. Should we call fire down like Elijah did and just... And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy people's lives. I came to save them. And of course, we say, duh, of course. But how many times in Jesus' name across the following 2,000 years have people gone to him and said, should we incinerate him? Should we incinerate them physically? Should we incinerate them emotionally? Should we incinerate them? And they don't realize that they don't understand the spirit that they're of. Jesus came to save men's lives. These were some hotheads. Not only that, there is another really embarrassing incident about these men that I think I've got to share. Matthew chapter 20. You could look at verses 20 through 24. James and John had a particular kind of mother I want you to imagine that you had your next performance review at your workplace and your mom shows up and she knocks on the boss's door and you're sitting there in the chair and she sits in and she comes in and she says, hey, you know what? My kid has been working really hard and I want to make sure that you, you're promising you're going to give him a promotion. You're going to give him a raise, at least a 10% raise. I'm taking care of my son. Can you, hey, mom, mom, mom. It's time for you to get, no, that, that was this kind of mom. Do you know what she did? Not only did she come to Jesus, they came with her. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. These two guys come with their mom and listen to what she says. Desiring a certain thing of him, he said unto her, what wilt thou, what do you want? She said unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Come on, Jesus, do it for my boys. Oh, man. It doesn't reflect, at least from my perspective, very well on them. And Jesus says, well, are you going to drink the cup that I drink of? Are you going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said, yeah, we're able to do that. And Jesus, in effect, says, well, you, you will, but you don't know about that yet. Now, we shouldn't just focus on the negative of these two because there are some really positive traits. John despite being somewhat of a hothead, was also a very affectionate, loving, compassionate man. We see that in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was the one who was leaning against Jesus affectionately, very close friendship at the Last Supper. Jesus and him had a very close friendship. James was martyred for the faith. We read about this in the book of Acts. He was one of the first martyrs in the early Christian church, these men had good traits too. It wasn't all bad. It's just that we, we look at them and we see some of these challenges. By the way, why did Jesus call them hotheads, the sons of thunder, when he called Peter a rock? 
Do you know sometimes God reminds us of shameful things in our past so we'll never do it again? So that he can tell us not just what we can be, but don't go back. Don't go back. I remember a story. My uncle, uh, John, wonderful man, um, was uh, a volunteer firefighter, and he was trapped in a burning building. And he very nearly died. He was dragged out alive. His oxygen came out. And he said he vividly remembers as he was crawling in that space, a thought came to mind. And it was a time when he was a high school wrestler. He was going up against a very, very, just very impressive wrestler, one of the best wrestlers, I take it, in the state. And, and my uncle said back in high school, to his great shame, he hardly even tried. He just kind of said, I can't do this. I can't. And it just a very dominant win. And in that moment, God brought that thought to his mind as he was about to collapse on the floor from smoke inhalation. And that thought came to mind. He said, keep on going. And he crawled just a little bit more, and guys came and dragged him on a time. What an interesting thing. That thought comes into mind. And sometimes God brings those same things to mind for us. No, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't, don't be like what I've delivered you from. God uses both motivations as Jesus did. Okay, let's keep on going. Who else do we have here? Let's look. I'm going to pair together five and six, Philip and Bartholomew. Philip and Bartholomew. Who were Philip and Bar Bartholomew? Philip is actually the one who finds Bartholomew and brings him to Christ. Now, who is Bartholomew? Bartholomew actually just means son of Ptolemy. It actually could almost be a last name. And, and we think actually that this man goes by the name Nathaniel in John chapter 1. You would call him Nathaniel Bartholomew, son of Ptolemy, Nathaniel Bartholomew. And you can read about him in John chapter 1 and, and this story where Philip finds Nathaniel, brings him to Jesus. And in fact, Philip tells Nathaniel he's from Nazareth. And, and, and Philip's, uh, uh, Bartholomew, Nathaniel's response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Maybe a little bit prejudiced, right? But then comes to Jesus. And notice Jesus says something about him. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. There's no tricks. He's utterly sincere. Nathaniel, after this, doesn't speak one word in all the Bible. All we know about him is really what Jesus said about him. This is a sincere God follower. Wouldn't that be a great description for you? No guile. Absolutely sincere. So you've got, on the one hand, this sincere guy. Who's Philip? I've got a picture in my head of Philip. He's got a pocket protector on. He's always rationing out what's going to work and what's not going to work. He's the one who, when Jesus was going to feed the 5,000, he looked at Philip and said, Philip, how are we going to feed all these guys? How are we going to feed all these guys, Philip? And you know what Philip says? 200 penny worth of bread's not going to be enough. I mean, can't you just see him pulling out his calculator and tap, 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 tapping out, Jesus, this isn't going to work. We don't have enough funds for this, Jesus. Kind of the really practical, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. I love that. On the one hand, the very sincere follower of Christ. On the other the really practical one. Maybe sometimes struggles with faith, with extravagant visions. Just really, really on the one who's saying, is this really going to work? I think that's Philip. Let's go to the next two. I'm going to bring together Matthew number seven, or I'm sorry, number eight or number seven on our list with Simon the Canaanite also called Zelotes. We talked about this a little bit last week. Matthew was the tax collector who was saved. That means he was in thrall to Rome. That means he was a crook. That means he was a thief. He was getting rich by collecting taxes for Rome and or for Herod Antipas, who was the vassal king of Rome, and skimming off the top. He was hated. He was despised by any good Jew. And Jesus calls him, we read about that in, in, uh, earlier in Mark chapter 2, where he goes by the name of Levi. And Jesus calls him to himself, and he's gloriously saved. Now, why do I pair him with Simon the Zealot? The Zealot. Well, when we call him, when Scripture calls him the Zealot, it tells us the political party he had been associated with. And Josephus, actually, the Jewish historian, tells us about this zealot party. 
There were three main political parties, religious classes in, Jew, in Judaism at this time. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, who we read about in the Bible, and there were the Essenes. The Essenes were the monks, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They were the ones who went out into the desert and lived. Those were the three main. The Zealots were the fourth. They were like the upstarts. And do you know what they were? They were fiercely Jewish independence party. They were the ones that says, we have no God, we have no ruler but Jehovah. Uh, Caesar, we don't recognize him. Herod, we don't recognize him. We are relentlessly pro-Jewish. Now, why is that relevant? Because Jesus decided to pick and place among his 12 two people who could not have been more opposite on the fundamental political question of the day facing Jew, the Jews. Do we submit to Rome and follow them, or do we go on our own and be independent and fight for our liberty and fight for our rights? What did Matthew the publican come from? I'm going to get rich. Let's just make as good as we can. What about Simon? No, we're going to fight to the death. In fact, the Zealots were the main ones fighting the Jewish rebellion in the 60s AD that led to Jerusalem being destroyed. Now again, Simon was out of that party by the time he followed Christ, by the time that war happened. But Josephus even describes them as basically terrorists. Basically terrorists going around trying to attack and undermine Rome whenever they could. Now, again, I just want you to picture a church. And let's go back to the 1770s in the United States. There were the loyalists at the time of the American independence, the Tories, who wanted to continue submitting to England and following the authority of the king. And then, you know, you had the Paul Revere types, the fierce independence freedom fighters. Can you imagine two of them not only being in the same church, but then being in the same small collection of disciples? What do you think they talked about over three years? You think they talked about politics? I do. That says something to us, doesn't it? The central political question of the day, Jesus picked two radically people from radically different backgrounds and potentially even current existing viewpoints on. Let's keep on going. James, El James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. We're going to look at those two together. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Now, we know virtually nothing about these men. And in fact, if, I want, if I'm going to put a, 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 an idea in your mind, is that these two are men in the shadows. James, the son of Alphaeus, we just don't know. He, he doesn't say a word in our Bibles. Now, I just want to be clear. There are two views about who this is. The Roman Catholic, if you were to ask a Roman Catholic theologian, they would say this is James, Jesus' relative, the one who was a leader in the early church and the one who wrote the book of James. I don't think that's the case. I think James, the half-brother of Jesus, is referred to as the half-brother of Jesus and was saved, accepted Jesus only after he was resurrected. The Roman Catholics believe that this must be because they can't say that James was the half-brother of Jesus. They have to say he's a cousin. Do you know why? Because they believe that Mary remained a virgin perpetually. She never had any other children. They can't accept that when the Bible says James, the brother of Jesus, it means the brother of Jesus. So I don't think this is talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the author of the epistle of James. Notice that, Lebe that Thaddeus also goes by the name Lebeus. And notice that also in number 11, look at Luke 6 in your chart. Number 11 is Judas, brother, or potentially son. It just, in the Greek, it literally just says Judas of James. Could be son of, could be brother of. Now, this has led, again, a Roman Catholic theologian to say, oh, this is Jude, the author of the epistle of Jude. Again, I don't think so. I don't think it's referring to that Jude. I think this is someone who was named Thaddeus, nicknamed Thaddeus in Labaius, and also his given name was Judas. You say, why wouldn't he just go by Judas all the time? Well, here's probably one reason. At one point, Judas is referred to only once in our Bible as speaking in, in John chapter 14 and verse 22. You can look it up. Do you know what he's referred to as? Judas, not Iscariot. 
how would you like to go around life as Judas, not Iscariot? Don't you think you'd want to go by Thaddeus? Don't you think you'd want to go by Labaius? Judas, not Iscariot. He was in the shadow of someone very wicked. Do you know James, the son of Alphaeus? Do you know what he's referred to in Mark chapter 15 as? He's referred to as James the Less. How would you like to go through life being known as James the Less? Yeah, not James, son of Zebedee. The Lesser James. In fact, that word is, comes from micros. Micro, do you know what it literally means? James the Little. It could be because he was just a little fella. could be because he was, he was just a small guy. Yeah, there's little James. There's big James over there, and there's little James. I mean... We just picture, right, how these relationships would have worked. Yeah, there's little James, and there's Judas, not Iscariot. This just shows you a little bit about these men, some of whom just walked in the shadows and we know virtually nothing about. Two more, Thomas and Judas Iscariot. Who is Thomas? Thomas, again, probably most of you know him because in John 20, after Jesus was resurrected, he says, I'm not going to believe that he was resurrected unless I see the, 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 the nails in his hands and feel his side, I'm not going to believe. And we think of Thomas as the what? The doubter. Well, maybe that's a little bit harsh for Thomas, but do you know almost every time he speaks in Scripture, it seems like he just is a pessimist? In John chapter 11, Jesus is going to go heal Lazarus. And, and, and what does Thomas say? Let us go also that we may die with him. I mean... In Eeyore. I mean, that's just my perspective. You know, you know people like that. There's just, if, if, if there's a glass with this, it's, it's, it's half empty, right? I mean, that's just, that's just, is fundamentally who they are. And, and Thomas, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right before that, Thomas has said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how are we going to know the way? I mean, he's always a little bit on that kind of pessimistic side. And Yet here he is in his own characteristics. By the way, Thomas is also called Didymus. means a twin. So he must have had a twin. We don't know who it was. But here is another small fact about him. Now what about Judas? Judas Iscariot, always the last, always the traitor, always the one who is held with scorn. Here's the interesting thing about Judas. Do you know that John chapter 12 and John chapter 13 show us that Judas was so trusted among those 12 that he was, its account, that he was their accountant. He held the bag. What does that mean? He kept the money. You don't put someone in charge of your finances unless you trust them entirely. In fact, not only that, John 12 tells us that he was a thief and they didn't know it. Now, Jesus must certainly have known it. The others didn't. He held the bag and he was a thief. In fact, Judas was so respected among the 12. Do you remember in John chapter 13 when all of them are saying, is it I? Am I going to be the one that betrays you? Am I going to be the one that ha does this horrific act? Not one of them is looking around at Judas and saying, I think it's him. Not one of them. In fact, when Jesus tried, it seems to me to make it clear. He says, I'm going to give the sop to someone. And the person I give the sop to is the one who's going out. And then he goes to Judas, and Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And out he goes. Do you know he was so trusted that even then, no one knew. They thought that he was going out to get something because he had the bag. Can you imagine the shock it would have been to them as they went out into the, as they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here comes Judas Iscariot leading the way on behalf of the high priests and soldiers? What a stab in the back that would have been. They trusted him. Now, stop there for a minute. The trusted one. How good is our discernment, really? How good is our perception, really? If Judas, the traitor, the one who actually, Scripture says in John 13, Satan entered into him, and out he went. A thief that no one knew. What does that tell us? Well, it's something that we'll get to in just a moment, but Judas actually is a tragic tale, not only because he committed suicide and ended his life in guilt and shame, but also because Jesus said of Judas, it would be better for him that he were never born. 
the eternal judgment that is going to fall on Judas, a man who walked with Jesus for three years and was a pretender the whole time. The eternal judgment on him in hell is going to be like no one else. It will be better for him if he had never been born. Sad, an awfully sad thing. So we've seen some just general observations, some specific characteristics. And then finally, let me just suggest some practical applications that hopefully these 12 men can have for ourselves. The first practical application for me very clearly is this. Don't judge the way the world judges. Don't judge the way the world judges. Because do you know who the world would have seen as the most successful one, the most appropriate one, the most, the most promising one? Exactly who they gave the money bag to. I saw this from uh, something that was I thought was pretty fun. It's written by a man named Greg Ogden in his book, Transforming Discipleship. This is a fake letter that someone put of from from a consulting service if Jesus had used to select his 12. Listen to what it says. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. The two brothers, uh, or I'm sorry, Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Now that makes us chuckle a little bit, but isn't it true? Now here's what I'm saying. Beware, beware of judging and discerning based on how the world judges. Beware of placing Christians and Christian leaders on pedestals on the basis of their gifts and not on the basis of the character that only Christ can create. Beware. Don't do it with anyone here in this church. Don't do it with me. Don't do it with any other Christian leader. Don't do it with people based on their talents, on what they themselves can create a picture of themselves on. How many people's faith has been utterly wasted, has been damaged because they have placed people on a pedestal for their gifts and then when they topple from a lack of Christian character, they say, how could I have been so blind? Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus does not choose people the way the world does. He chooses people who he can create character in that the world cannot create. It is not about your talents and gifts. It's not about mine. It's not about any of ours. It's only about character, the character of Christ that he is willing to produce in humble, repentant hearts. Don't judge like the world does, or on a worldly view of success. We see these today even in this our church growth concept. If there's a big church, that leader gets this number of speaking obligations or other things. If God calls a big church, that's a wonderful thing. But that's not the qualification, ultimately, of what he is looking for for his leadership. The second practical application, I think, is this. Embrace... Your differences. Embrace your differences. Who did Jesus call 
as his 12. People who couldn't have been more radically opposite. Talk about personality types. You have the affectionate one over here. You've got the melancholy one over here. You've got the foot and mouth disease guys over here. You've got the hotheads over here. You've got the one who was always in the shadows over here. You've got the pessimist over here. In other words, every single type of different person we see Jesus bringing together in one. And one of the hardest things for us, whether it's in family relationships, church relationships, or other things, is dealing with people who see things differently than we do. The glass half full guy can't stand the glass half empty guy. Why do you have to be like that? Well, because God made him like that. And Jesus can still use him or her just like that. When we see someone in our church family who is so different from we are, in, for, from whom I am, in the way we see things, our first response shouldn't be to get annoyed or irritated. It should be to say, what can I learn from that guy? What can I learn from her? Jesus chose 12 to be very different. You know, even this is true, as I said last week, politically. Two people who couldn't be more different on the central political question of the day. Now, that should make us humble. Do I believe that there are some things affecting our policy and our political commitments today that are taught in the word of God and we should stand to? I do. I do believe there are things that we should stand on. But do you know there are many other things that aren't? And instead of just becoming reflexively focused on our own party identity, on our own identity, particularly in the body of Christ, we should be willing to listen to each other. We should recognize that God places people in a body with different perspectives on some of these issues, different life experiences, different backgrounds. And instead of being just militant evangelists for things that we can't ultimately be grounded entirely in the word of God, we should be humble because we should see that Jesus brings these people into our lives. He chooses people intentionally sometimes to produce different perspectives that we might not ordinarily come to ourselves. Praise God for these differences. Praise God that he can use us, no matter what our personality, our background, our socioeconomic differences, and even some of our political convictions. Let's embrace that in humility. Jesus showed us an example of that. And then finally, a third practical application from these men. Let's broaden our vision Let's broaden our vision. Do you ever look at your own weaknesses and say, God couldn't possibly use me? You think he, he, Peter was set up for success? He said, no, I, I'm too melancholy. I, I, I can't be used greatly of God. You think Thomas was set up differently than you are for success? To be used by God? See, the point is, we should see ourselves in these men. We should see our own weakness. God chose me? Yeah, he did. And he chose you to go and make him known. You say, why? Have you ever been driving down um, in rural Minnesota or maybe just outside the metro area and you've seen a big farmland? And as you've looked in that farmland, there's just this been huge contraption. It's got pipes it's got wheels. Sometimes you see it sprinkling across an entire field, covering an entire field, and it moves on those wheels and covers an entire field. Where does that come from? Where does that irrigation system come from? It might come from a hydrant in the middle of a field, a big pipe coming and supplying it with water from an underground well. What's the point? How well would one hydrant in the middle of a field spraying everywhere, how would that do covering an entire field? Not really well. It'd have a lot of power, but it would be coming from one location. What does, a, what does an, a moving irrigation system do? It takes that one hydrant and it channels it through a contraption that ultimately will cover the entire field. And do you know that's what God's called you to? He's, Jesus Christ is the hydrant. The water is the water of life provided by his Holy Spirit. And when Jesus was here on earth, he was one hydrant spraying an awful lot of different directions and covering a lot of ground. But do you know, he relies on us to cover the whole field, to be the sprinkler system. Yeah, I'm not providing the water. I've got no water to give. All I am is I'm, I'm a channel. I'm a pipe. 
And he needs all of us. Every single one of us. We are part of that sprinkler system. We are part of that irrigation system. You say, well, I'm really thin. I don't have a lot to give. Well, connect up to the, to the hydrant. And you'll give what he wants you to. You say, I'm a little dirty on the inside. I, I'm always reminded of my weakness and my failures. Connect up. If you get connected up to that water, he'll clean you out. And then he'll send you. Connect up to him. Live for him. We sang the hymn before the message this morning. Little is much when God is in it. And what better example than looking at these 12 men and seeing a bunch of frankly little guys in a lot of different ways. And now what's the end? They will be inscribed eternally on 12 foundations for all of us to be grateful for. You know, friends, are you grateful for these men? Are you grateful for their courage? when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them? Ephesians 2 tells us that we were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are here saved today because of those guys. We know what we know about our Bible in large part because of these guys, because they transmitted it faithfully and accurately to us. And as we close this morning, I want to read one verse for you. Daniel 12:3 says this, speaking of an eternal kingdom that we have, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Jesus is choosing you. It's time to go and be used of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these 12 men. Lord, in some ways, they picture our weaknesses. They picture our natural traits, some of our embarrassing natural traits, and yet you use them. Father, how weak we are, how prone we are to wander, how prone we are to fail you. And yet you choose us, and you commission us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Father, let us be your channels. Enable us, cleanse us, prepare us to be who you want us to be, to have characters transformed into the character of Jesus Christ.